0: If you have your copy of God's Word, let's open up to the book of 1 Samuel once again, where today we find ourselves in chapter 8. As you're finding your place there, I may or may not have told this story before, but uh, years ago I stood in this pulpit filling in for then uh, Pastor Michael Dean. And it just so happened that that day in the traditional service, uh, Scott Engel and I think Joyce, or maybe Catherine and uh, all the girls they sang... I got up to preach, and the first thing that I said when I got up there is I chastised all the Ingalls and said they needed to apparently go take some singing lessons <laughs> because it was so good. Well, after the service was over, I had a, a man approach me, and he began to chastise me for saying the most rude and disrespectful thing he had ever heard in his life. Now, apparently, he had no sense of humor uh, back then and didn't understand sarcasm there are some church traditions where when the singer and the choir do a good job everybody will take out their handkerchief and they'll fly it around in the air and I think that would have been uh, worthwhile today doing. Choir did a marvelous job. Scott, always great to have you sing. You do it so well with great poise and we're grateful. I'm thankful that you let me be off last week as we were traveling with family and Dr. Wayne Davis did a phenomenal job standing in this pulpit and delivering God's word to God's people. And we are certainly proud of him as well and the accomplishments that he has over at DBU. And a couple weeks from now, uh, we will be traveling with our student ministry to the, the mountains, if you will, of Arkansas. And at this trip, it's our youth camp, we go to one of my favorite places in all the earth. And on one of the days that we're at camp, we're going to hike up about three and a half miles to a place that's just known affectionately with me and my friends and some that have gone there as Cecil's Landing. The Cecil's Landing is essentially just a cliff. And this is where we take our students and our adults, if they're daring enough, and we throw them off rock face cliffs about 60 feet up in the air. We let them climb up it a little bit, but we let them rappel down. And one of my favorite things to do at camp is to be the the guy that gets to hook the kids into the ropes and the harnesses and double check all the safety things and then explain to them very briefly how it is that you're supposed to repel down a mountainside, many of them having never done this before in their life. But one of the things that you notice when you begin to repel for the first time is that it always takes, no matter who it is, boy or girl, man or woman, just a a moment of hesitation, asking themselves very briefly, can I trust this rope? As I dangle off this cliff, will this rope hold me? And nine times out of ten, those that trust the rope and listen to the instructions, they get down off the side of the mountain with no scraped knees, no tears, but it takes that first inclination just to trust. The ones that fight the rope, the ones that attempt to fight gravity, if you will, are the ones that have the harder time getting down, but it comes down essentially to a matter of trust and the life of the person who goes down. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we have an issue with trust. An issue that God's people are not fully trusting who God is and allowing him to hold them up in the harness and and in the rope. But more importantly and in a much deeper level, eternally speaking as God's people where God promises to protect his people, to provide for them to take them to the promised land and to deliver them from bondage and sin and death and evil. And God proves himself time and time again, yet his people continually struggle with trust. And they just quite, can't quite figure it out. And I wanna pick up reading in verse one where we left off in the previous week and the text says that when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel And the name of his firstborn was Joel, meaning Yahweh is God. And the name of his second, Abijah, meaning Yahweh is our father, a noble attempt by our friend Samuel to do right, but they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain, and they took bribes, and it says they perverted justice. Presumably, scholars would assume that about 20 years, give or take, have taken place from chapter 7 up until this point in chapter 8. We find Samuel at older age, and now he has commissioned his two sons into the ministry, but we notice some similarities in chapter 8. Compared to what we've seen in the earlier chapters of Samuel with Eli and his two sons, every time we're introduced to Eli, he's in old age. And every time his sons are talked about, they are described as wicked men who don't have a heart after the Lord. And here, for whatever reason, we find Samuel in this same predicament. Though no reasons given, we just see in verse 3 that these two boys did not walk in the ways of his father, nor walk in the ways of the Lord their God. And it says they took bribes. And it says they perverted justice. Justice is a loaded word in today's culture, is it not? Many who would advocate for justice are oftentimes accused in some circles as being progressives and liberals, and certainly in the right context or in the wrong context, that can be said. But friend, can I tell you that all throughout Scripture, it speaks of a just God who wants his people to walk justly with him and to pursue justice. The question before God's people is what kind of justice and what does that perhaps mean? Well, in this particular instance, we see the opposite of justice executed in the life of the two sons who did not walk according to the ways of God, who pursued material gain and took advantage with bribes and perverted justice. They took advantage of the community and and the city and the people that God had entrusted them. But to give another perhaps working definition of justice, upholding justice, it's about impartiality and it's about goodness with regards to communities and individuals and the world. Impartiality. Not showing favoritism to the rich over the poor, or the poor over the rich, to the black or to the white, and to every color in between. All made in God's image, treated equally, standing shoulder to shoulder alongside as we pursue justice. But justice also is more than just that. It is rooted in the heart of God who seeks to bring everything into right standing with himself and his redemptive work and purposes in this world. The ultimate avenue in which we speak about justice is through salvation, coming to to be reconciled to a just and holy and righteous God. And so we preach and we proclaim as we take care and as we provide and as we raise and as we lift other people up, We embody the gospel that God gives us. Yet they took bribes and they perverted this justice. Verse 4 continues along and he says, So then all the, Israel, all the elders of Israel gathered together seeing this and they come to Samuel at Ramah and they say to him, Behold, Samuel, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, the request, and when they said, give us a king to judge us, the people surrounding Israel had kings that led them into battle, that represented their military might, and oftentimes these kings were made into their own gods, and they were worshipped by their people. And as the Israelites looked out into all of the enemies that circled around them, they simply made the choice not to overlook God, but they wanted someone to come alongside God and to protect them. And what this is, is an issue of the people of God having an issue with the word of God. When God says, I will protect you, when God says, I am all you need, the Israelites said, but we want a little bit more. We want assurances, therefore give us a king That will judge us. And Samuel then prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel in verse 7 Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. And only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. I want you to notice Samuel's response, first and foremost, to the request by the elders. Samuel doesn't rage against them and even point out the flaw and the faulty logic of their ways. But instead, what does Samuel do? Well, according to the text, Samuel goes to the Lord in prayer. It's his first response to what is seemingly before him a national crisis and a cultural crisis. It is to go to the Lord, not to fret with worry outside of that, but to bring the worry and the frustration and the fretting and the anxiety and whatever it is that filled Samuel up. He goes before the Lord and he prays. And then God begins to speak. And as God begins to speak to Samuel, he tells them, to explain to them what will happen when they reject me as king and then I give them the very thing that they want. The very thing that they're asking for, it will come with consequences and there will certainly be repercussions. I think this teaches us as God's people by way of principle two very profound things. Number one, as God says, they're not rejecting you, but they are rejecting me, that when we walk and when we live in God's ways and experience rejection, they are not rejecting you, they are rejecting God. When you share your faith with someone far from God, And you are faithful to the scriptures and rightly identifying the need of Christ in in their life and, and that they should repent and trust by faith Christ as Savior. When they reject you and they will reject you when you evangelize and you share, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting God. When you live faithfully before a watching world, and you are obedient to the scriptures and the word of God when, when the world and the culture condemns you and rejects you. They are not condemning you and rejecting you, but rather condemning God and rejecting God. And so it ought to give us all the confidence in the world to be obedient to what God has called us to do and understand that the rejection that we face oftentimes as Christians and believers is not because of us, but rather because of God and being on mission with him. But friend, we must make sure that when we are rejected in many ways and for whatever reason, we must make sure that first and foremost, we have the right message. But secondly, we must make sure that we have the right tone Too many times I see well-meaning Christians divorce tone and how they say things with what they are saying. And the message of the gospel is always this. There are certainly levels of tone and and tone changes and the persuasiveness that Paul implores the church in 1 Corinthians to be persuaders of the gospel. We must make sure that our tone and the truth that we proclaim are just opposite sides of the same coin. Our tone today, it matters more than ever before, not compromising the truth of God's word, but understanding that how we say things matters. But number two, what we learn from these first just few verses, when you demand a substitute for God, he will often allow you to experience worldly and unbelieving rule. Whether that comes in the form of government or whether that comes in the form of the sin that God allows and and that you persist in, God will allow you to experience the devastation of those actions. He will allow you to experience the separation from himself and from God's people and from his word. When you demand a substitute or an idol, he will often let you experience it. And often to the detriment of our soul and our spirit. But what I want you to see in verse 10 is Samuel really begins to warn the people of God. As you look at verses 10 through 18, one of the things that's striking in these verses is this idea and this paradigm of taking and serving. One of the things you'll see in verses 10 through 18 is this repetition of words that the author is doing of this king will only take, and he will take more, and he will take a little bit more, and then he will take much more. Listen to these words from the Lord, verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him, and he said, these will be the ways of the king. He will reign over you, and he is going to take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands of commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants he will take the tenth of your grain. of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he will put them to his work he will take a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves and in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the lord will not answer you in that day. In the Hebrew text and several other books of the Bible, Judges in particular in Exodus 2, the Hebrew uses that word to cry out several different times. But when it uses it every other time in the Old Testament, it uses it to explain and describe the anguish of the enemy of the people of God. That when they are defeated by God, that there is anguish and there is utter humiliation because they opposed the one true God. And yet in this moment, God foretells that in that day, you will cry out, same Hebrew verb and tense and everything. He says, you will feel humiliated. You will experience the anguish in the same way that your enemies experienced the anguish before me. You will cry out because of this king that you want, but I will not answer you. This word take that exists here is also analogous to not just a king taking from his people, but is this not what sin does to us? All sin does before God's people is it takes, and it robs, and it destroys. Sin is the thing that will steal joy from us. It is a thing that though momentary could be momentarily could be pleasurable it takes away our peace and it offers instead a troubled spirit it takes away fellowship both from God and the people that we have sinned against often in our homes often in our deepest relationships sin is all about what i want and it takes and it replaces God I remember many years in Sunday school, someone just simply said, All I need to know about sin is contained in the middle letter of that three-letter word. I. I, 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 I. This is essentially what boils down to why we sin, because we believe oftentimes that we know best, and or we believe perhaps that we would get away with it. And so we sin. But one of the things that we must recognize about sin in and of itself, though it takes sin's wickedness, begins not with the immorality of the act, but rather with the heart behind the act. It's not so much the act. We can diagnose the act and we can see the act, but the better question, the deeper question, is what prones our heart to wander away from the things of God? And I think it goes back to that letter, I. Because I want what I want and when I want it. Oftentimes when we sin and it takes from us, we can do one of several things. One, we can blame the idol itself. In other words, take no responsibility for our actions and what we did and and why we did it and blame everything else but the actual thing that we are responsible. But number two, we can also blame ourselves to the point where we simply try to labor to fix it. And we get into this process of sin management and trying to manage our sins. And all the while, those sins come back in different forms and, and in different means. But we can blame ourselves. We can blame the idol. but We can also blame the world. We can choose to be cynical people because of our circumstances as Bill prayed earlier. That we can be victims and perpetually remain in that state and we can blame the world. Or perhaps a better way is to preach and proclaim the truth to yourself that you were created for another world. Friend, I don't need to remind you today that this world, it's not your home. You're not working for this world. You're not laboring for this retirement or that house or the next car or the next big purchase. But everything that we do in this life will be measured up before Christ and and judged by him. Because we are living not for the things of this world. We are rather just sojourners passing through. Just for a moment. God brought us into existence and from dust we came and dust we shall Return The things of this world are momentary and they are fleeting, yet they have eternal ramifications. But I think one of the things that I'm learning in my own life and have been learning for some time is the reality that when God reveals sin, when God shows you that sin ultimately disappoints, it's so you can learn that only he is the one that satisfies you. So we let rest in that truth this morning. The people of God didn't fully understand this and, and Samuel warns them and, and yet they continue on and, and are consistent with their asking. And we pick up in verse 19 and he says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us And go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in their ears, in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. There are two primary points and theological takeaways that I believe that God would speak to the heart of Travis Avenue this morning. Subtle reminders and and maybe even uh, abrupt reminders, but number one is simply this, the recognition that you are prone to drift away from God's word. You are prone to reject authority and to drift into the ways of the world. This is our natural habitat. When we separate from God's people and when we separate from God's word and even when we're around God's people and in God's word, Lord, our hearts are prone to wander prone to leave the God we love. And so we need to gather weekly. We need to study daily. We need to submit as often as we can to the authority of God's word as he speaks it over into our lives and allow our lives to be changed by this. Because if we don't, what ends up happening to people that don't recognize those things, theology becomes more about therapy for the mind and therapy for the heart. Righteousness becomes replaced with just trying to be happy all the time and and holiness is replaced by some wholeness that exists within the life of the human being. Truth gets trumped by feelings and controlled by feelings. Rather than allowing the truth of God's word to inform our emotions and our feelings, we flip it upside on its head. And we don't recognize that we drift and don't submit and follow the ways of the world we become more focused as a church on preserving what we have rather than sending and going out into all the world and i think this is the biggest challenge for every traditional church in america and in the world how do we honor our traditions And recognizing with gratefulness and gratitude where we've come from, but but recognizing also that the traditions are, are not the things that compel us to go. It is Christ and his mission, and he says, go, and he sends his people out into the world to tell. To go to the nations, to the uttermost parts of the world where every tribe, nation, and tongue would hear the gospel of Jesus. But number two, and lastly, is this, that in God's mercy, God will warn you of the consequences and the self-destructive behavior. Why? Because, according to the psalmist, God is long-suffering. But, friend, I don't have to remind you as I even remind myself that we are not to put God's long-suffering to the test. We are not to abuse that. We are not to forsake that. But, rather, we are called to be different, but we are called to not be like all of the nations around us, to not want a king like all the other nations. And the more we begin to think about this idea of a king not like the other nations, we recognize that that meaning has greater meaning when we understand looking into the future about the day in which one man stood before one of the most powerful empires that had ever existed. And he stood before a man named Pontius Pilate who asked him, are you the king these Jews have been talking about? And Jesus responds in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. I am not a king like the other nations. I am not a king of this world. You see, Jesus embodied this message that was opposite of what we see as Samuel warns that the king is going to take, and you are going to be in his servitude as a, an indentured uh, slave before him with legalism and yoke and, and bondage. And Jesus comes along, and he does not take, but rather Jesus gives. He gives fullness of life, he gives hope, and he gives joy. And he tells Pontius Pilate, My kingdom. Is not of this world. Friend, the Bible teaches very clearly that through repentance of sin, through faith in Jesus, we can be brought into the kingdom that Jesus speaks about, and we can walk with him. And perhaps there are some of you here today and are even watching online that don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, and can I just plead with you today to, that today is the day of your salvation, to call upon his name, and the Bible says, you shall be saved. But friends, maybe there are some brothers and sisters who are in Christ that have forgotten that Jesus' kingdom is about giving and not taking. And maybe you've been controlled and enamored with the I, the the middle letter, and that three-letter, almost dirty word, sin. And you've been consumed with perhaps your own kingdom or a kingdom that is not representative of the kingdom that we see jesus speak about in his word and friends can i just gently and lovingly as your pastor and as your friend call you to a place where you would receive as well the forgiveness of jesus through the power of the holy spirit and leave this place on mission with joy and and with hope were it not for grace where would we all be would you pray with me father in heaven We thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus. We thank you that you, Father, are not like any earthly king. That you are a God who gives and gives abundantly and generously with kindness. You're a God who gives patience. You are long-suffering according to your word. And I pray today, Lord, For me, first and foremost, but for others in this room, God, that we wouldn't take advantage of that patience. We wouldn't take advantage of that long-suffering. But, Lord, that we would seek to walk closely with you all the days of our life. Pursue righteousness and being right with you over the things and the ways of this world. So, Father, we ask that you bring peace in our hearts and peace in our church, peace in our nation. And we ask these things to happen and come in the name of Christ and all God's people said, amen.